The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 8, Essential Number 4, Priority Constitutional Amendments for an Inclusive Democracy. Part 1. Australians don't talk much about the Constitution, but this doesn't mean they exhibit no interest in how power is exercised and shared. On the contrary, suggestions abound about how reform of the political system in Australia may be achieved to prevent abuse of power. Usually, though, these focus on mechanical alterations of the existing system and institutions of government. They tend to concentrate on things like electoral reform, reduction of the possibility of corruption, the establishment of fixed terms for parliaments and transparency in government. Some reformers question the usefulness of the Federation. Others argue that local government should be recognised in the Constitution and that there should be a redistribution of powers exercisable by the Commonwealth, the states, their parliaments and executive governments, the Governor-General, the courts and the territories. And then there are those who argue that a focal point for constitutional reform should be the establishment of Australia as a republic. These are all important areas for reform, but it must be observed that they don't offer much in terms of the possibility of political inclusion. In the main, they are just an attempt to make elected leaders do a better job, pushing all the responsibility back onto them. They rely on some sense, or shall I say, blind faith, that there is wisdom, capacity and generosity in those leaders who managed to climb to the top of what Mark McKenna called the flawed and grimy world of day-to-day partisan politics, and that better leadership by politicians is itself the answer. They rely on a faith that if the system of power-sharing by the powerful elite could be tweaked, then the talent of the powerful would be unleashed and become a force for good. Most tellingly, they assume that politics is the sole arena for resolution of debates and for decisions on change. None of this promotes inclusion. It is simply a set of selective repairs to the mechanics of a failing system. As I said in Chapter 2, it is evident that politics doesn't work, certainly not as a mechanism for inclusion. But I should add here that if democracy is reduced to mere politics, then democracy won't work either. In fact, democracy doesn't work well now, precisely because it is reduced to the antics of those best able to navigate the flawed and grimy world of politics. A healthy democracy requires people, electors and the elected alike, to rise above base politics and participate in a much wider, more open and respectfully conversational arena than our adversarial parliaments. We cannot rise above this if people do not offer support to politicians to enable them to do the better job we expect. In the last decade, the world has watched while the number of democracies has declined. According to the Museum of Australian Democracy, quote, democracy is on the retreat globally. We have now entered what the Pew Research Centre has termed a global democratic recession. Satisfaction with democracy is tipping around the world. There are now more authoritarian regimes than full democracies, 
unquote. And in 2022, researchers from Democracy, Our World in Data reported that the leading approaches to measuring democracy indicate that the world is becoming less democratic. They reported, quote, democracy is in decline regardless of how we measure it, whether we look at big changes in the number of democracies and the people living in them, at small changes in the extent of democratic rights, or at medium-sized changes in the number of and people living in countries that are autocratising, unquote. Some communities in Australia have already tried to circumvent this by establishing an array of mechanisms for strengthening democratic processes at the local level. These include citizens' juries and processes for the co-design of individual policies by citizens and politicians. These processes have excellent potential to re-empower those Australians fortunate enough to get the opportunity to participate. But those opportunities tend to arise ad hoc, and because there is no overarching plan in which any piecemeal local democratic decisions can be assessed, there is only a limited potential for national benefit overall. As such, the support that federal politicians need most from the Australian people can best be organised by the inclusive reforms I have already suggested for the Constitution. But because there is no guarantee that these suggestions will readily find favour in politics, especially to a level where they are given constitutional status, and because we might expect that inclusive reforms are not likely to be appreciated by governments that thrive on division, there is a strong argument for prioritising some of the mechanical alterations of the existing systems and institutions of government that I've just referred to. While they might not promote inclusion per se, some of these reforms can at least help prepare the ground for the wider inclusive reforms of the type suggested here for a new constitution for a people's sovereign state. And in the event that an appetite for a people's constitution emerges and Australia adopts such a law as a means of advancement to a fully inclusive democracy, where people can play a more significant role in shaping their future, then a few of the mechanical reforms to the process of politics would be essential. The more important of these mechanical reforms include the need to prohibit corporate capture of governments and donations by sectional interest groups, the need to limit the powers of the Governor-General, the need to specify the limits of the power of the Prime Minister, and the need to eliminate the basis of racism in Australian law. Each of these reforms needs a basis in the Constitution, by which I mean that if Australians are to be confident that these reforms will not be scaled back by a government that may seek to act contrary to the public interest, then a constitutional imperative should be provided to prevent lawmaking or silence in law that is inconsistent with the public interest. The following sections provide context for the necessity of constitutional amendments to secure reforms. Chapter 8, Part 2. Essential Number 4A. Prohibition of corporate and other organisational donations to political entities. It is likely that those most accustomed to wielding power in Australia in a manner that is largely unrestrained by anything other than their own self-interest will be ranged against the entry of another party into the arena of power, that party being the people of Australia replete with their own chapter in the Constitution. 
Any change in the arrangement of our democracy for the purpose of increasing the power of the Australian people will be fiercely resisted, even if it involves no diminution of the powers of the elected. Any change to empower the people will be especially resisted by the corporate powers that have captured those that have been elected and made them beholden for their continuance in Parliament on the patronage of corporations. Corporations hold Australia's democracy in chains, especially the Murdoch media and the fossil fuel industry. But with a people's constitution, we can begin to unleash both the people and those we elect from those chains. We can do that more surely, however, if we break the nexus between political parties and the public service on the one hand, and corporate donors and lobbyists on the other. In fact, what is required is a complete abolition of donations from corporations, but also from other powerful groups, such as unions. This system of patronage needs to be replaced completely, and until it is, Australia will not be able to claim that its democracy works on a system of equality, where one vote equals one value. Most discussions about the failure of Australia's electoral systems to ensure adherence to a principle of one vote, one value, focus on malapportionment of registered voters between electorates or malapportionment of the permitted number of seats for each state and territory, a problem which tends to be exhibited in the Senate. Doubtless, these problems of malapportionment need to be addressed, but a significant impact on whether one's individual vote has more value than another also arises from the distortion caused by inequities in the capacity to make donations. In a fair electoral code, it should be evident that no elector should have more power than another to influence the outcome. In short, no one should be able to buy an election. At present, there is nothing prohibiting this. As a result, Australia has experienced some quite spectacular instances of electoral funding distortion. This would imply that donations by groups such as corporations and unions or other entities that have the power to amass funds that can be donated to campaigns should be prohibited and donations by individuals should be strictly limited in value and frequency, say, an upper limit of $5,000 from individuals distributed amongst as many candidates as they may wish, and no more than once in each parliamentary term. Ideally, this would result in replacement of the current largely unregulated system of donations with a system in which elections, including the cost of candidate participation in the election process, are mainly funded by the state itself. Rules for free and fair access to those state funds would need to be devised, along with rules for disclosures by candidates that the money was spent in accordance with the rules. But this could be achieved through legislation, as long as the Constitution itself included some guiding principles. Such principles would, as a minimum, emphasise that no laws shall be permitted which do not promote equal suffrage. The practice of state funding in federal elections is already provided for in Australia under the Commonwealth Electoral Act 1918, Part 20 of which provides that registered political parties, candidates and groups may be entitled to election funding. The election funding is payable in relation to any candidate who received at least 4% of the total formal first preference votes cast in the election. 
abolition of corporate and other group donations would imply the need for the state to establish a significantly bigger budget for federal and state elections. But the necessary increase would be easily affordable, and in any case, if democracy is worth having, it is worth paying for. It is certainly worth paying to keep corruption out of it. Having said that, the investment would only be worth it if it is fairly distributed. There would be no point to increased state funding of elections if the distribution systems undermined political equity. Of course, the most effective way of ensuring political equity is not undermined would be to amend the Constitution to include a national voice for the people. A clear understanding of what candidates are elected to strive for as the primary purpose of the nation is likely to offer financial savings and economic gains which will significantly outweigh the extra cost for taxpayers in funding their elections. In fact, the more we move towards a firm articulation of the job we expect parliaments and governments to do, the less likely we are to have to worry about the effect of corruption in the election process. Even so, it would be a mercy to unchain those we elect from servitude to corporations and lobby groups by ensuring that they can no longer bribe the elected with donations or offers of jobs when they retire. Reforms which prohibit the revolving door between corporations and politics when there is a conflict of interest in passage backwards and forwards through that door are long overdue. And anyone who enters politics should expect no benefit other than the satisfaction of promoting nothing more and nothing less than the public interest as it may be articulated in a national people's voice. Chapter 8, Part 3, Essential Number 4B Limitation of the Powers of the Governor-General In the 2020s, Australians are likely to be called to a referendum on whether the nation should be reconstituted as a republic. Support for a republic in 2022, according to opinion polls, appeared to be uncertain and was negatively impacted by the death of Queen Elizabeth II. As such, the probable outcome of a referendum on this issue is anybody's guess. The result in such a referendum is likely to impact the way the Australian nation is viewed and views itself in the 21st century. A yes result will signal a decision that the preferred character of Australia is as a mature, independent nation standing on its own two feet and with a distinct sense of sovereignty. A no result will signal that the preferred character is colonial, a dominion of a foreign power without a need to develop independence or establish distinct sovereignty. Either way, it is apparent that from the point of view of culture, the outcome of a referendum on a republic will be significant. But from the point of view of good governance in democracy, the outcome of such a referendum is less relevant. By this I mean that for purposes of good democratic governance, it doesn't matter whether Australians elect to remain a dominion of a British monarchy and be subject to the British king or queen, or opt to become a republic and elect their own head of state. What matters, irrespective of whether Australia becomes a republic, is whether we continue to allow governors-general or any other nominal heads of state to exercise the inordinate power they can now under the Constitution.
As mentioned in chapters 3 and 5, the Australian Republican Movement, the ARM, acknowledged in January 2022 that more work needed to be done on the Constitution beyond installing a republic with an Australian head of state. Among other things, the ARM's constitutional advisory body recommended a range of amendments to reduce the powers of the head of state in an Australian republic compared to the current powers of the Governors-General. There is no reason why these reductions of power should not apply, regardless of whether a republic is the chosen form of state for Australia. Specific amendments suggested by the ARM's constitutional body included 1. That all powers of the head of state be exercised on the advice of the Prime Minister, Ministers or the Federal Executive Council, except when a. Appointing a Prime Minister, whom they believe is likely to be able to form a government which has the confidence of the House of Representatives, b. Terminating the appointment of a Prime Minister, the head of state may not terminate the appointment of a Prime Minister who holds the confidence of the House of Representatives, c. A Prime Minister who does not hold the confidence of the House requests an election, the head of state may not grant an election to a Prime Minister who does not hold the confidence of the House, d. Summoning the House of Representatives to determine the confidence of the House, e. Dissolving the House of Representatives and the ability to issue writs for an election if the confidence of the House of Representatives is indeterminate for a period of no less than seven consecutive days. Other specific amendments suggested by the ARM included 2. That assent to proposed laws endorsed by voters now be granted automatically on the seventh day unless the head of state has been advised to grant assent earlier. 3. That the head of state no longer has the power to withhold assent to a bill. That the power to return a bill with amendments to Parliament be exercised on advice. That the obsolete provision granting the power to veto laws 12 months after they have received assent or reserve assent for up to 24 months be removed. That the head of state no longer have the discretion to refuse assent to successful referenda. And four, that a head of state may be removed by a motion passed in both Houses of Parliament calling for the head of state's removal for proved misbehaviour or incapacity. Australians should be given the opportunity of a referendum to amend the powers of the Governor-General, recognising that, as the Constitution is currently worded, the Governor-General has powers which exceed that of the British monarch in relation to control over the Parliament. Australians have no need of a Governor-General in that capacity. And if there are some who would argue that there is a need for control over the Parliament or perhaps some adjustment of the balance of power between the Parliament and some other constitutionally empowered state player, then that player should be the people using constitutionally lawful processes. If the people are enabled as the source of sovereignty by the constitutional amendments suggested in Chapters 5, 6 and 7, and if a High Court is given sufficient guidance by the Constitution to determine whether a head of state has lawfully exercised a power to call an election or dismiss a Prime Minister or Parliament, then there is less need to worry that power might go to the Governor-General's head, as many think it did in 1975.